Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and we are going pick by pick through the draft now and talking to some of the people who have had a chance to take a closer look at each of these picks. I had on Sam Gold, who broke down the video Jordan Brooks recently. Go back and check that out if you're interested in what he thought of the Seahawks' first pick. But joining us today is Kevin Garber from the Seahawks Nest podcast. He recently did a film room video exclusively for the patrons of their podcast, patreon.com slash Seahawks Nest. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Glad to be on. Glad to have you on first time. And uh, I'm fired up to talk about some of these Seahawks draft picks. You know, you looked at a lot of these players going into the draft. So was it a surprise to you at all that the Seahawks traded up in the second round to get Daryl Taylor out of Tennessee? Yeah, to be honest, I was a little bit surprised. He was somebody that I saw on a lot of the experts draft boards. He was looking more like a third round prospect. So when we dealt up, he wasn't who I thought we were necessarily going after. But after watching the tape, it made a lot more sense to me. I'll say that much. I'm, I kind of have a hard time when I'm thinking about the draft and, and trying to decide, you know, who would I have gone up for at that particular moment? But really, when I think back, was there anybody on the board? I guess maybe a guy like Zach Bond, but he ended up going in the third round. Was there anybody that you kind of had pegged as maybe that early second round type pass rusher? You know, I thought that Julian Aquara was a guy that we might go after out of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. He had those long arms. He had the bend and the reach that the Seahawks really seemed to covet at the edge position. So he was a guy I thought maybe we were going after when I saw it straight up to 48. Well, you said that after going back and watching the film, it it did kind of occur to you what the Seahawks were looking for. What what do you think Seattle was was seeing as part of Daryl Taylor's game that they liked and, and could really fit in with what the Seahawks do? Well, I think something that I need to couch all of his 2019 tape in is that he played the entire season with a stress fracture in his shin. And so when you look at like first step explosiveness or when he's really kind of twerking on his leg in the run game, um, sometimes you'll see that show up in his plant foot. And so that's why I think at times he appears maybe a little less athletic than he is, Mm. because when he's fresh and he's really on the move, he's really, really athletic. He gets upfield really fast. He's got a really good bull rush move um, locks his arms out, uses all of his length. He's got 33 inch arms, which kind of meets that threshold that the Seahawks like, and he does show speed and bend to get around the corner. And you mentioned Daryl Taylor played with that fractured shin injury, you know, every single game. And that was something that we heard in the post-draft press conferences that actually impressed John Schneider. So I, I have to imagine it had that impact, and and you could really see that difference, I guess, when you went from 2019 back to 2018. I, most analysts, do you think that they're just looking at 2019 tape, or do you think they're actually considering the 2018, or maybe not taking into account in the injury that they just see that 2019 season and kind of uh, had him pegged for most people as maybe a late second, third round guy? I think it's sort of like what we, um, people have been talking about with Jordan Brooks. You have to do this kind of Frankensteining of the tape where you're looking at the 2018 tape for one thing and the 2019 tape for another. With Brooks, you're looking at 2018 to see those coverage skills that you want on the outside and then 2019 for the blitz and the athleticism and some of those pieces. With Daryl Taylor, what you're looking at is the 2018 for the pure athleticism. But what you saw was a big jump in technique between the 2018 and 2019 season. So his technique, especially in the run game, I thought was a lot cleaner in 2019. But that first step explosion and kind of that get off on the ball, you saw that a lot more clearly on the 2018. 
So if you were willing to kind of put those two together and bank on the stress fracture having a lot to do with his athleticism showing up less on his 2019 tape, then I think it would have made him a higher-ranked prospect for you, which clearly that was the case for Seattle, and it seemed like for a few other NFL teams. But if you didn't want to play that game of putting together these two separate pieces to create the whole picture, um, it made him a little bit less of a safe prospect, probably for a lot of teams, and definitely for a lot of scouts and evaluators. One of the things I like to do was evaluate him against other NFL talent. And it was easy to do when you have him playing Georgia, both in 2018 and 2019, and going up against Isaiah Wilson, who ended up going a first round pick in the draft. And it was uh, it was pretty impressive to see him go up against a guy who was 80 pounds bigger than him. Yeah, and it looked like it against a lot of the competition um, over the course of the year for Wilson. He's another guy that I'm sure a lot of us watched a lot of tape on because he seemed like such an obvious fit for the team. Yeah. So when you saw the tape where Taylor was going against him, you saw Taylor able to hold the edge against Isaiah Wilson in the run game. And we threw around the term people mover, and we're going to talk about it again in a little bit when we talk about a different Seahawks draft pick. But uh, Isaiah Wilson is a guy who is a true people mover, is a right tackle. And Daryl Taylor was able to stick on a spot, hold the edge. When you were watching from the sideline cam, you got to see the entire set of Daryl Taylor's numbers. That means he was squared out and allowing the backside pursuit and the linebackers to do their job cleaning up the run game. If you were to recommend somebody to go and look at a game that Daryl Taylor was in that really was indicative of kind of his upside as an NFL player, is there any game in particular that you point to during his college career? I think if you want to see what he looks like when he's able to really get out and run and show his athleticism, I think the BYU tape from 2019 is something to look at. Um, if the competition against BYU is something to dissuade you from finding value in that, then I would say look at the Georgia tape for all the struggles that he has. When you consider it's an NFL level right tackle and he's playing through an injury, I think it's a pretty impressive tape. He's able to get upfield against him. He gets a couple of pressures. He's able to get his hands on from a couple of times. And he does quite well against the run game, making some pretty big impact plays, including a tackle for loss on Swift. That 2018 tape of him against Georgia was pretty fun, too, although his very first uh, forced fumble of that game on Fromm, he knocks it out of Fromm's hands, and the dude that uh, that was uh, blocking Taylor ends up picking up the ball and taking it for a touchdown, and I, I, I felt so bad watching the tape just knowing that here he did, he made some excellent play, and it ended up resulting in a Georgia touchdown. Yeah, that had to be a little demoralizing. <laughs> oh, you, you go through all that effort and trouble, make a big play. It's time to celebrate, and you're watching the ball take off in the wrong direction. But he did end up coming back. He got another forced fumble in that game, also got a sack. And that was a game, too. You talk about going back to his 2018 tape and seeing that athleticism. You know, he's not just an on-the-line defensive lineman. You know, he, they had him playing as an outside linebacker, so he was lining up. Uh, on the outside as well and in space. So it was it was interesting to see him uh, with that type of game, you know, for me, not knowing all that much about how he played in college. Yeah, I think it tells you a lot about the way, uh, again, when you think about the way that the defensive end position is used in Seattle, occasionally you'll have an end drop away in coverage if we're blitzing with a linebacker, or we might ask them to play in space in a few different ways. So when you think about everything that we might ask out of a Daryl Taylor, over the course of the breadth of his tape, you got to see all those things. However, he's probably going to be focusing much more 
on rushing the passer, on being a down lineman, which I think for somebody you want to get more polished to their technique, having them able to focus on that one role is probably going to help him improve much more quickly as a rookie. One piece of news that came out of Wednesday was that Jaron Reed was taking number 90 back. And of course, Jadevian Clowney, that was the number he wore last year, actually paid Reed uh, some money to be able to take that jersey number and use it himself. And so people kind of saw that as a signal as potentially Clowney not coming back next year. After watching some of the tape of Taylor, do you look at that and say the Seahawks are okay now going into next year? Or are you still thinking that the Seahawks need to find another pass rusher going into this 2020 season? I think that if we had just signed the two obvious candidates being Clowney or Griffin and hadn't made some of the other moves that we had, we'd be in a really bad way anyway. Bringing in a guy like Taylor, a quality rookie pass rush season from somebody drafted outside the top 15, you might be looking at five, maybe six sacks, which would have been enough to lead the team last season. So he's going to be some value add in the pass rush. But I think we still need a veteran, a guy who gets to the quarterback a little better in order to really round out that unit. So I would hope to see another piece added. Well, Kevin, let's take a quick break. I want to come back and talk about the Seahawks' other draft pick, Damian Lewis, with the 69th pick overall out of LSU. Let's talk some offensive line coming up after the break. I'm joined by Kevin Garber of the Seahawks Nest podcast, and we are talking the day two draft picks, Daryl Taylor and Damian Lewis taken by the Seahawks in day two of the draft. And Kevin's had a chance to break down some of the game film on these guys going back into their previous seasons. And now with that in mind of them joining the Seahawks, and I'm kind of curious because here the Seahawks, they trade out of the second round pick just a few spots down to add a fifth round pick as well. Lewis was actually the first guard the Seahawks have taken in the first three rounds going back to John Moffat back in 2011. You know, they they picked guys like Ethan Posick, Justin Britt, and Jermaine Effetti, but they were all announced as tackles when they were drafted. So were you a little bit surprised maybe that the Seahawks went guard here just considering their draft history? Well, you know, first of all, hearing John Moffat and picking something in the same <laughs> sentence is uh, something I'm very used to hearing at this point <laughs> as a Seahawks fan. But with Damian Lewis, I mean, I was a little surprised for a couple of reasons. One, as you said, that's not a position we've necessarily leaned on early in the draft. But the second is we've brought in roughly a baker's dozen of interior offensive linemen over the course of the offseason. But we knew somebody was going to get added. And those tackles kind of flew off the board a little early. So as much as I didn't necessarily think it was a lock, He was one of a handful of interior offensive linemen that um, we had been focusing on. And so it didn't come as a huge surprise. Yeah. Where did you have Lewis ranked in terms of the guards? Because I know a lot of people had tackle to guard conversions, maybe uh, uh, slated ahead of him. But really, when you look at the guys who were the true guards, Lewis was actually the first guy off the board. And I had him slotted in right next to Robert Hunt. I think that him and Robert Hunt, who ended up going to the Miami Dolphins out of uh, Louisiana, Mm -hmm. were two guys who really fit the scheme system for the type of blocking that we look for. Uh, Really powerful run blockers, but also, also capable enough movers to provide value as a pass blocker. So he's a guy who I had as a potential late second, early third round with that pick 64 
he was a guy I thought we might go after there. So they were likely comfortable with a few different guys ended up moving back. And like you said, so many guards on the team already. I'm sure Seattle looked at him, maybe was still the the top guy on their board and thought, well, we'll take a we'll go back a few spots still. And if he's there, then then we'll take him. And if not, then move on to some of the other guys down the list. It just it didn't seem like a need so much going into the draft. But obviously, the Seahawks saw it as uh, enough of a value to go ahead and release DJ Fluker this past week. Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where the plan for the offseason seemed to be get everything to, you know, somewhere between a C minus and a C plus across the roster so that wherever talent was sitting during the draft, you're able to draft for talent. And Damian Lewis is a very talented player. As far as trying to move forward, you want to get younger along the offensive line. We started a couple of aged veterans and the health issues with that caught up. I think if you were to catch Pete in an honest moment, he would tell you that, you know, he wants beefy boy Haynes and Damian Lewis to take off with those two interior, those two guard spots next season, and maybe Iapadio be depth. And so from that perspective, with Dwayne Brown getting a little older, with right tackle being in flux, with Justin Britt's contract future being a question mark and now no longer a question mark, uh, moving towards some younger players along the line kind of makes sense when you think about it that way. So considering that DJ Fluker is now gone, do you think Damian Lewis is a guy who can come in and replace Fluker right away? Or are the Seahawks going to have to rely on competition with Jamarco Jones, Chance Warmack, and Jordan Simmons? I think that there'll be competition in camp and offensive lines a position where typically players struggle in their first year in the league. Sometimes it could take a little while to get going. But Lewis seems pretty plug and play. He already has adequate play strength. His physical skills are what you're looking for. And in 2019, he played in a very pro style blocking scheme. He had a lot of isolated pass blocking reps. He had a lot of plays where he was asked to do things that a right guard's going to be asked to do in the NFL that they aren't necessarily asked to do in a lot of college schemes. So if if anybody in the draft had a chance at being ready to step in and be a day one starter at right guard. I think Damian Lewis is up there with one of the best contenders for that. Were there any games that you look back on from Lewis where he was going up against a a next level NFL talent? I mean, I guess maybe uh, like Alabama going up against Raquan Davis or or any other players and matchups that you would go back and watch if, if you wanted to get an idea of what he can do. Yeah. Two of the games that I really focused in on were the Alabama game and the Auburn game going against uh, Derek Brown and Auburn, but also with both of those games, you're talking about two SEC teams that get high-level talent across the front seven and run really solid defensive schemes. So they tend to be a really good litmus test for an offensive lineman and what they're capable of handling. I know that uh, the Senior Bowl is also important for the Seahawks. Did you go back and, and look at any of his YouTube clips from that week leading up to the Senior Bowl or, or actually at the Senior Bowl? I haven't gone back and looked at it since we picked him, but that's always something I look at when I do my initial draft evaluations. And he was one of the guys who showed a lot of ability to anchor. I mean, he's a big dude, six, about six, three runs about 330 pounds. And he looks every single inch and pound of it. And so when you would see him go up against interior linemen in those one-on-one pass rushing drills, you'd see his ability to like anchor and become a rock. And he was a hard guy to move. So I thought he had some really solid reps in those one-on-ones. 
I just know as a Seahawks fan that I'm probably going to go back and look and see that he's uh, likely a better run blocker than a pass blocker. But what do you see his strengths are on, on either side of uh, in both aspects of the position, whether it's run game or passing game? I think that what you're going to see a lot is some moderately lazy analysis from the national press, <laughs> where when you have someone who is an extremely capable person at one skill, they tend to diminish their role in another. So I'm going to talk about a metric that the Seahawks really like to look at, and that's Trent's explosion formula. You're looking at bench press, vertical, and broad jump. And that tells you how athletic somebody is along the offensive line. The number they look for uh, when you plug in the formula is a total of three. And Damian Lewis was a rounding error within three. So you're talking about a guy at 330 pounds who was getting up for a 30-inch vertical and a 108-inch broad jump. So we're talking about somebody who is athletic. He's huge, but he's also athletic. And strengths were he was a powerful run blocker. He has a great anchor in pass protection. He is almost impossible to bull rush through. I saw Derek Brown get him once on a bull rush where he was able to really knock him off balance. And you're talking about the most powerful bull rusher in probably all, all of college football last season. He works really well out of quick sets where he's allowed to plant his feet quickly and get his hands on the defender. He has really good hand placement. I would say his technique from a hand placement standpoint is what you want to see by your first couple years in the NFL. Um, he combo blocks well to both sides with the tackle in the center. He picks up stunts well. He gets to the second level and absolutely swallows linebackers. And the thing I like about him most is, over the course of a game, he will knock the guy to the dirt probably two, three, maybe four times. And you start seeing in the fourth quarter of games, even more talented defenders, even some high-ranking NFL prospect type guys, you can tell they're just sick and tired of being blocked by Damian Lewis. It's like the old Marshawn Lynch quote, you know, nobody has a, has an answer for getting punched in the face over and over and over. Right. Damian Lewis punches you in the face over and over and over. Yeah, I think uh, maybe it was in your discord that I saw that uh, wasn't he described as like an energy vampire. Yeah, that was uh, that was the term I like to use. Effort vampire. Um, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, he, he he puts his weight on somebody and just leans into them. Or let's say um, he's prepped up in case there's a linebacker blitz. So he's kind of dropping back in pass protection. Center's got a guy. Tackle's got a guy. Nobody comes down blitzing the A-gap. So what's he do? Well, he's just going to trot over and knock the guy over that the center's blocking and then just lay across him. Just make him feel all 330 pounds for a minute. And that will tire a guy out. I'm kind of curious, Kevin, when we go back maybe four years down the road from now and look back to this draft and their second and third round picks, which one of these two guys do you think ends up being the more successful professional? That's a difficult question. I think Daryl Taylor has the potential to be one of the top two or three pass rushers to come out of this draft. If all things kind of go correctly, I think the clay is there, but I think Damian Lewis is the more sure bet. The things that he does really well, he does at a high level right now. And they're things that systemically Seattle understands how to use and understands how to value. So when we're getting to the end of rookie contracts, if I had to put money on it, I'd say Lewis is the guy that I'm sure is going to get locked up for that extension. He's Kevin Garber of the Seahawks Nest podcast. Be sure and check out their show. Uh, we've had Nathan on before and now we've had Kevin. Now, now we just got to get the third member of the crew and have the entire trifecta. 
So be sure and check that out. Check out their Patreon, patreon.com slash Seahawks Nest. You can get Kevin's breakdown videos there. He also has one up of Jordan Brooks as well. Kevin, really want to thank you for coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks once again to Kevin. Sounds like his Damian Lewis video is going to be going up, probably be up for their supporters as soon as you're hearing this. So if you want to check that out, you can support their show, get those videos. Also wanted to send out a congratulations to the winner of John Gilbert's 2020 field goals armchair GM challenge. It was the flying Fijian with 52 points and getting the win. Seahawk crates got second place, actually got three picks. Correct. And I was impressed as a field goals community. We actually got all eight of the Seahawks picks within the guesses. And Jordan Brooks was guessed seven times out of about 300 contributors. Daryl Taylor, 48 and Damian Lewis, 48. Those were the top two guys. But then you look at Alton Robinson selected by 19 of the entrance. Colby Parkinson and DJ Dallas were both selected by seven of the entrance. And then even Stefan Sullivan and Freddie Swain, their sixth and seventh round picks. Two, two people among the 298 people who entered actually got those two players on their list. So I'm, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm proud of our field goals community for coming in and uh, being able to collectively pick all eight of the Seahawks draft picks. Check that out. It's John P. Gilbert's piece up at fieldgoals.com. And if you're looking at some of the players that the Seahawks have picked up following the draft, the undrafted free agent tracker is up there at fieldgoals.com as well. Check it out. Subscribe to the show, sbnation.com slash NFL podcast. Coming up in the next episode, I will be bringing the day three press conference between Pete Carroll and John Schneider. So stay tuned. Check that out. And until then, go Hawks.